Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. morning, we are going to be continuing in a series that we've been in. Uh, We're actually nearing the end of a series in the book of Acts. And uh, so this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 32, where we are going to see for the third time in the book of Acts, more or less the same story told. This is the story of Paul's conversion. Uh, We get Luke's telling of the story in Acts 9 when he's converted uh, on the road to Damascus, and we get Paul telling it in one of his trials, and now we get Paul telling it again. As we saw last time, it's going to be some differences uh, each time around with it, but what we've seen each time with it is that Paul tells his story, not principally because it's his, it's not just that he uh, really enjoys people knowing about him, It's because of the way that his story touches on and is a chapter in the larger story of what God is doing in the world. He tells his story not to give himself glory, but as a way to point others to the glory of God that shines in and through his own life. And so we turn to his story in the hopes that God can do the same in our lives and the same uh, in the broken and redeemed lives that each of us bring that God might use them in order to tell others, in order to glorify himself through the very details of our stories. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is going to be Acts chapter 26, reading verses 12 through 32. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, In midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me, uh, to the things in which you have seen me, and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from uh, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ might su- must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light 
both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter, a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, maybe my favorite time anywhere is to be on the beach as the sun is rising. I love to be out on the beach in those early hours of dawn when the sun is just starting to peek up over the horizon. This may be growing up as an East Coast Florida kid my whole life, right? Those, you know, the, the pampered people on the West Coast of Florida, they get to wait till sunset. They don't have to get up early to see the sun over the water. But if we over here on the East Coast, if we want to see the sun dancing over the water, you got to get up early and you got to get out there before there's anybody else on the beach. I love getting out there in the dark or near dark, hearing the wash of the waves against the shore, beginning to hear the birds wake up and swoop down, and then gradually the gray haze of darkness getting pushed back, a little sliver of orange light pokes up over uh, the ocean. And then to see, uh, it seems like it happens in an instant as the sun comes up and all of a sudden, not just the sun, but the water itself seems to start glowing with its light, the light dancing off over the water. The light as it comes changes the scene completely. It's not uh, that the ocean wasn't beautiful before, but you couldn't see it. It's not that the birds weren't out there uh, doing their thing before, but you could hear them, but you couldn't see them. You could hear the waves, but you couldn't see the waves. And this is the way that light works. It illumines and it opens up so that we can see what's there. Light is a curious thing. In one sense, you don't see light at all, right? In this, in this room, you don't see light in and of itself, but light enables you to see everything else. If there is no light, there is no vision. If there is no light, you can't see the colors around you coming at you. In the absence of light... You don't see anything at all. You can be in an absolute, if you picture yourself in a dark closet, no light coming in, there could be a, a, a bright, you know, the most brightly colored bird in the world could be in there with you. And you wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't see its colors. You wouldn't see what it brings. Darkness hides the splendor of everything that's around us and light opens everything to us. Light is hard to under, understand for uh, 
centuries, people debated, scientists debated, you know, what is light? Is light a wave? Is light a particle? They came up with kind of both, right? We struggle to understand what light is, but we know that in its absence, we're blind. Light opens up everything to us. Darkness isn't really anything of its own. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Darkness isn't a thing in and of itself. It's an absence. It's the absence of illuminating light. And as we know, a little bit of light can illuminate a lot of darkness, right? If you put yourself back in that dark closet and you light a match, all of a sudden that little bit of light, that little bit of presence drives out the absence of the darkness or the screen of your cell phone starts to push back the darkness all around you. The light overcomes the darkness because the light is something and the darkness is nothing. This theme of light overcoming darkness, light driving out darkness, is one of the consistent and recurring themes in the Bible. In fact, one way of looking at the entire story of the Bible is to see it as the story of light overcoming darkness. The God of light driving out the darkness of this world. It comes up over and over and over again in the Bible. And in this story of Paul, when Paul goes about narrating his story to the court, he's sitting there in front of the governor, Festus, and the king of his region, Agrippa. And as he goes about telling his story to them, he keeps seizing on this image of light and darkness, of light driving out the darkness, both in the world, in his life, and then hopefully in the lives of others. Because Paul had come to understand his life in light of this larger story, that he was in darkness, and a light shone out of the darkness, and now he sees. And he walks around now as a, as a representative of that light, sharing the story of that light with all who hear. He tells the story of himself going from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, right? As the great hymn writer, Isaac Newton narrates his own, uh, no, Isaac Newton was gravity. John Newton was amazing grace. Thank you. Um, scrub that from the audio. Um, so... Um, so he said, uh, in writing Amazing Grace, uh, right, I was blind, but now I see. God has given me new eyes. He's brought me from darkness into light. Have you learned to see your story in that light? As your own being brought out of darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of shame, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of foolishness into the light of God's presence, God's truth, God's wisdom. The whole Bible is the story of God's light dawning in the darkness. Remember, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. There was only darkness. And then God said, let there be light. And the light came, and the light drove out the darkness, and God separated the light from the day, calling the day, day, and the darkness night. As the story of creation proceeds, one of the, the refrains is, over and over and over again, in the seven days of creation, there was darkness, in the, or there was, 
There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. We might pause and ask, why? Why does he tell the story this way? And it's the normal human way to talk about time is that we go from day to night, right? We go from our work day and then we go to sleep and we go to our evening and then we get up and we start again another work day. Normally when we tell time, we don't go evening and morning. We say day and then into evening. Some commentators say that that was the Israelites' way of keeping time, that that in Israel they talked about the day beginning at night and then going into the morning, but that doesn't help us understand this story because creation is the reason why Israel told time that way. One commentator, R.A. Finlayson, puts it this way, and I think this is right, that this was God's pattern of workmanship. God is always facing the light. His back is always on the darkness. His face is always on the rising sun and the waxing light. And if that's true in the natural creation, it's true also in the spiritual creation. When God shines in our hearts with spiritual illumination, it's twilight with our souls, growing in vision, though we see but dimly. You hear what he says is God is always facing with his back to the darkness and his face to the light. He's always bringing darkness. He's always bringing light into darkness. He's always bringing a new day, new creation. That so for God, he's always moving from night into day. God's light is a continual theme in the Old Testament. He leads his people by a pillar of fire through the wilderness at night. He shines forth his light out of his temple. And conversely, darkness is a symbol of sin and the absence of light. We see him bring darkness onto the Egyptians as one of his plagues. We see darkness as a, as a, as a sign of uh, his people's judgment in breaking covenant with him. And there, right at the close of the Old Testament, in Malachi 4, we get this promise. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Saying there at the end of the Old Testament, look, darkness and exile isn't going to have the last word. That God is once again going to bring daytime out of night, morning out of evening. And so then John begins his gospel with this account, right? That in Jesus was light, and that light was the life of men. That God caused his light to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself describes himself as the light of the world, that into the darkness of this world, he's come to bring light and life. And yet there's a moment of deep darkness, isn't there? When Jesus hangs on the cross, we get that detail that the sun goes dark as he hangs there from noon to three, that it's a sign of God's absence, a sign of his judgment, a sign of the darkness of this world, that in the death of his son, the sun itself goes out and there's darkness on the land. It's in darkness that the women make their way to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial on the third day. And it's at the dawning of the new light that they see the resurrection and the new life, the new creation bursting forth. And finally, in Revelation, we get this detail when he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, that there's not going to be any need for any temple on that day because the Lord himself will be their light, right? That there's no longer going to be darkness and light and pattern because God is always going to be there. 
in the thing that light pointed to, the presence of God's glory and his healing and his life will be with us and be ours forever. And so if you want to know what God is doing in this world, which we all do, right? We all get to our moments where we scratch our heads and we shed our tears and we go, what is God doing in this world? When you hear a story like we all woke to this morning or late yesterday of a man walking into a, department, a, a grocery store and killing 10 people in a burst of hatred, and you go, what is happening in this world? In the darkness of this world, where is God and what is he doing? In the darkness of our lives, the darkness of our confusion, what is God up to? Friends, the story of the Bible tells us that God is bringing light into our darkness. And there may be moments in this world where it feels like the darkness is winning. There may be moments in this life where it feels like you can hardly even see the light because the darkness is so heavy. But what God is doing, what he's been doing from creation, what he's doing in his son, what he's going to do forever at the new heavens and new earth is driving out that darkness until there's only light. And so when Paul comes and finds himself standing as a man on trial before two people who have the authority to kill him, two people who have the authority to put him to death for his crimes, allegedly, instead of trying to acquit himself, instead of trying to uh, exonerate himself, instead he tells this story that in the darkness of this world, God is bringing his light and I have seen the light, and I've been changed by the light, and I want you to step into the light with me. Because right now, Festus and Agrippa, you stand in darkness until God causes his light to shine. Paul gets about telling his story, and he says in verse 13, at midday, so in the middle of the day, he's on his way to Damascus, doing his work of persecuting the early church, and he says this, oh, mid, at, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. All right, this is an interesting little detail, right? Paul sees the light that's higher than, that's brighter than the sun shining at noon, right? It's one thing to see a bright light in the middle of the night and go, oh man, that's, it was dark, but now it's light. But what Paul sees is a light that makes the brightness of noonday seem dim by comparison. So even while the sun is shining, he seems himself overwhelmed by this brighter light. Yes, yes. As Jesus appears to him, as Jesus unveils his glory towards him, and Paul is made blind. Remember Luke's telling of the story earlier, Paul is struck blind by this light until he goes and his eyes are open so that he can see. He can see and he's sent as, an, as a missionary, as an apostle to the Gentiles. God tells him, he says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among the people who are sanctified by faith in me. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Paul, you're a missionary to this light. You're going out as a representative of the light, both to Jew and Gentile alike, to let them know that their eyes can be opened. They can go from living in ignorance of God and who he is and what he wants for their life and his grace and his truth 
so that they can see. And notice what he says, that they can go from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of light. Right? That the darkness isn't neutral. That, that Satan is in the business of darkness. That this creation has an enemy. One who wants to keep all of humanity in ignorance and in darkness. Right? Paul elsewhere says that Satan has pulled a veil over the eyes of those who don't believe. Right? That, that, that the, the work of the enemy, the work of the one who opposes God and opposes his image bearers, is not light. It's not, to get, it's not that people would come to a, a, a full-eyed, open-eyed conclusion about who God is and what he wants for them and what he's doing in the world, but so that they would live with a shrunken vision Unable to see beyond what's right in front of them. Unable to see beyond what they can see and taste and touch. Unable to see the reality of God. The reality of his work and his love and his pursuit of them. And so Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great. I love that. Look, he looks at the king and he says, look, you can be a little person, you can be a big person, you can be a powerless person, or you can be a powerful person. You can live on the street or you can live in a palace. It doesn't affect my message. It doesn't affect the light, right? It comes the same on all of us. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. He'd been accused of, by, the, by the leaders of the Jews of being a heretic, of going against Moses and the prophets. And he says, look, I'm not saying anything except for what Moses and the prophets said was going to happen. That the Messiah would come. That the suffering servant would die. And that resurrection would come. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Right? That his resurrection light would come for Jew and Gentile alike. And he says that he would be the first to rise from the dead. This is one of those themes that Paul repeats over and over, both in his speeches and acts and then again in his letters, right? That what's unique about Jesus' resurrection isn't that he's the only one that gets resurrected. What's unique is that he's the first to get resurrected, right? That that, That what's significant about his resurrection is that his resurrection means Paul's resurrection, and it means everyone who believes resurrection. That he's the first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead. And then we get this amazing interaction where Agrippa, the, uh, the king over the Judean province of the Roman Empire, stands up and he says to Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. All of your great learning is driving you out of your mind. This is still something that people will say, right? Look, you just spent too much time in books. It was all that school that messed you up, right? And so Paul was a scholar. He had studied over the greatest, he studied under the greatest rabbi in Israel, a man named Gamaliel. He had grown up as a teacher within Israel prior to his conversion. And now uh, Agrippa says to him, Paul, you've studied too much. 
You spent too much time in Moses and the prophets. It's made you uh, out of your mind. And so Festus says that. Sorry, not Agrippa, but Festus says that. And Paul says, look, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. He's saying, look, you may not agree with me. You may not believe what I'm saying right now, but I'm not crazy. I'm speaking in complete sentences. I'm making a rational argument. I've been arguing with you out of the Old Testament this whole time. You may not like it, but I'm not crazy. I'm telling you what God has always said was going to happen. And then he turns to Agrippa. So Festus was Roman. Agrippa was an Israelite. Uh, he was a member of the Herodian dynasty. So his gener- generations of his family had ruled over Judea at the hands of the Romans. And that's why he says, look, Festus isn't going to get this. Festus isn't going to understand. But listen, Agrippa, you know, you believe the prophets. I know that you believe. And Agrippa goes, are you in such a short time going to convince me, Agrippa, to become a Christian? And Paul says, look, I don't care if it takes a long time or a short time, but yes, I want everyone to become just like I am. And then you can almost imagine him shaking the the chains around his hands, saying, except for these chains. I don't want everybody else to be dealing with all this. But I wish that you would believe what I believe. Because you see, for Paul, lightness and darkness are not neutral categories. Paul's not in a place where he goes, look, you believe what you believe, I'm going to believe what I believe. You stay in the darkness, I'll chill here in the light. No, he says, I want you to believe. What I believe, this light of resurrection that's come, it hasn't just come from me, it's not just my light, it's the light. It's the light that's shining out of the empty tomb, the light that's shining out of the resurrection and the ascension, the light that's shining out of the church, and that one day will call all men to account. So yes, I do want you to believe. I want you to step out of the darkness and into the light. And so he makes this bold call for conversion of the two most powerful people in the room. Yes, I do want you to believe, small and great, I want you to be as I am. I'm not out of my mind. Look, one of the things that's proven to be historically true is that in a world of darkness, living in the light often makes you seem crazy, right? To the darkness, light looks crazy, right? To a world of violence, the way of peace looks crazy, right? To a way bent on death, the way of life and resurrection looks crazy. To a world bent on lust and uh, dominating over others, the world of the life of love and self-sacrifice looks crazy. We have a fascinating letter uh, from 1935, a letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, German theologian and pastor who would later die for his opposition to the Nazi regime, wrote to his brother, Carl Frederick. I don't know if there, if you didn't know that Dietrich and Carl Frederick were German, I'll tell you, those are two German names. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Dietrich and Carl were uh, an interesting pair as brothers. They were always close, but they were very, very different. Uh, Carl was a world-renowned scientist. He had done work and research with Einstein and some of the other leading scientists of the time. He was a skeptic of the Christian faith, despite having been raised in the Lutheran church. 
So here he is, a man of science, a man of cold skepticism towards faith. And then there's his brother, Dietrich, uh, an academic theologian studied in Berlin, uh, a promising young scholar. And for most of their life, even though Dietrich believed and Karl didn't believe, they at least had this commonality that they were both basically academics. Uh, They were both basically devoted to their studies and to the life of the mind. But then in the early 1930s, something interesting happened to Dietrich. He had something that we would call a conversion, right? Even though he had known Christ, he went from uh, his faith being something of an academic exercise. He He loved to write and speculate about theology in the best German way. But then around 1931, 1932, something happened, and he had a profound conversion experience. The two major uh, attributes, the two major things that contributed to that conversion are interesting. One was his year spent studying. He he did a a study abroad year uh, in the United States. He was a student at Union Theological Seminary in uh, New York City. And in his letters, he tells us he actually didn't learn a hill of beans from the scholars at Union. He said he, he was unimpressed with American liberal theology. But he did become a member for a year of Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. He became a Sunday school teacher. Uh, he became an usher. He, start, he apprenticed himself to the teachings of this black Protestant church in Harlem. And there, he said, he heard the gospel with power for the first time. Yeah. That he heard the gospel among a group of people. Think about, I mean, 1930s America. This was a, a suffering group of people. Yeah who clung to Jesus and knew Jesus. He went on to travel with gospel records and a gospel hymn book for the rest of his life, even into a Nazi prison. So that was what happened on the one hand. And the thing that happened on the other hand was the rise of Nazis to power in Germany. And he saw increasingly the church's compliance with, with, with Nazism. And those two things kind of welded together to say, look, it's only... Academic theology is powerless apart from a living faith in Jesus, apart from a willingness to obey and to suffer and to follow. It's all empty. And this started to lead to him and his brother drifting apart a bit. And so this is what uh, Dietrich writes to Carl. Yeah, and here, here in the background of this, the echoes of Festus's, you are out of your mind. Dietrich writes, Perhaps I seem to you rather fanatical and mad about a number of things. I myself am sometimes afraid of that. But I know that the day that I become more reasonable, to be honest, I should have to chuck my entire faith in theology. When I first started in theology, my idea of it was quite different, rather more academic probably. But now it's turned into something else altogether. But I do believe that I am on the right track for the first time in my life. I often feel quite happy about it. I only worry about being so afraid of what other people will think as to get bogged down instead of going forward. I think I am right in saying that I would only achieve true inner clarity and honesty by really starting to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Here alone lies the force that can blow all of this idiocy sky high, talking about Nazi Germany, like fireworks at night leaving only a few burnout shells behind. He's saying, look, you might, I know that I sound crazy to you. I know that your bookish academic brother has now turned into 
a raving devotee of Jesus. But I've come to believe that it's only following Jesus. It's only taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously. It's only a real life of discipleship that has the power to blow up the Nazi regime. And he saw this in 1935, before the war, before the worst of the concentration camps. He saw how incompatible discipleship to Jesus was with the darkness that was creeping in on his world. In a world of darkness, the light of truth often makes us seem out of our minds or crazy. And yet Paul's desire is to be bold in what he believes and to persuade others to come in out of the darkness and into the light, to speak truth to power, to be able to say to Festus and Agrippa, yes, I wish that you were like I am. Paul, we're told, could have been set free. This is the irony of this. They say, look, he hadn't done anything wrong. If he hadn't insisted on getting all the way to Caesar, we could let him go. But Paul didn't care about being let go. The freedom that Paul was after was in submission to Jesus. He knew that he was called to get to Caesar, to give this same message to Caesar, that he would come out of the darkness and into the light. When Paul says, yes, I wish that everyone would become as I am. I wish everyone would come to believe as I believe. If we're honest, that strikes us as rather odd. Right? Doesn't that, in today's contemporary world, if somebody were to say, yes, I think everyone ought to believe what I believe, that would seem narrow-minded. That might seem, you, we, people would ask, who are you? Who are you to tell me that I have to believe what you believe? That I have to become like you? If this seems strange to us, if saying that he wishes that everyone believed as he believes... This should serve as a a way to cue us to how much our world has changed, right? That it is seen as narrow-minded and intolerant to try to persuade others to believe something. But also how much of that world culture has gotten into our own hearts, right? If it feels odd to you to stand in front of someone and say, yeah, I actually do wish you believed what I believe. You start to get into the difficulty of Christianity in the modern world which is to say that we believe in a universal claim on truth and salvation, right? That Jesus does offer salvation not to some but to all in a pluralistic world where many people believe different things. And how do you live with both of those? An interesting survey by Barna, which is a a group that does a lot of surveys on American religious belief, found that almost half, of millennial Christians, which before I get judgy, I am one, millennial generation Christians, almost half of them believe that evangelism is morally wrong, right? That it's morally wrong to say what Paul says. Yes, I actually do wish you believed what I believe. And that shows how much of our world's way of thinking about truth and reality has crept into not just being a thing out there, but into our own minds and hearts. Right? Yes, we need to learn how to be winsome, how to be persuasive, how to be charitable, how to be respectful, how to live and respect someone's dignity if at the end of the day they choose to believe something different. Yes, all of those things. But if you lose that that piece of Christianity 
that does say, yes, actually I do wish that the whole world believed this. I believe that it holds out eternal hope and light in a world of darkness. If you lose that, you actually lose the missionary heart of Christianity. That Christianity that says this light isn't a private light for me and mine, but it's a light that must fill this world. We're told that in the end, the knowledge of God, his light will cover this world as the, darkness, as, as the, as the waters cover the sea. And we're to live our lives in pursuit of that, inviting, persuading all people that the light that shines in the darkness has not been overcome, but will shine now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we ask that you would help uh, us to live our lives increasingly in the shining light of your glory. Lord, we do believe that the light of your presence is driving out all of the absences and darkness of this world that you are bringing truth and healing and peace and life and salvation in this world. Lord, that one day you will make all things new and your light will be all in all. But until then, Lord, help us to bring all of the darkness into contact with the light. Lord, we, we ask that that would start in the darkness of our own hearts, that you would shine your light on every corner that we would rather keep in the darkness, that you would bring us into a full-lifed, pure-hearted following after you, and you would help us, Lord, to speak your words, uh, to give joyful witness to the light that is dawning in this life in your resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.